Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke about the immigrant experience, learned about redlining in Chicago, and discussed the politics of war. All this plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpen Week in Review for July 19, 2019. The boys from I-94 spoke with Chaya Bhuvaneswar, author of White Dancing Elephants. Bhuvaneswar, a practicing internist, spoke about the immigrant experience and why fiction is important now. This segment contains an excerpt from her work. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11. Uh, today we are joined by the author of the new collection of short stories, White Dancing Elephants, Chaya Bhuvaneswar. Uh, we, we mangle names in this uh, program. So, Chaya, did I get that close to being correct? Yes, Bhuvaneshwar. Bhuvaneshwar. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you so much for joining us. White Dancing Elephants is a new uh, collection. It's out from uh, Jank Books. Uh, I believe you actually won a prize uh, for this book as well that, that put it into publication. Am I correct? Yes, it won the Zank Books Story Collection Prize, and then it was a finalist for the Pan American Robert Bingham Debut Fiction Prize as well. Crazy, crazy, and it got a lot of press. I noticed seeing it in like... Uh, unusual places like Entertainment Weekly, which uh, is not known for picking up indie books. Yes. Yeah, that was a surprise and a thrill. thrill. <laughs> so uh, just let's back up a little bit. We, you know, Most of our listeners may not be familiar with, with who you are. You actually work as a doctor, and I believe you're at Mass General. Is that correct? Well, I trained at Mass General for my residency, so I'm allowed to say that. But um, because I'm a fiction writer and my views are so wide-ranging, um, sometimes very brutally honest. I don't say the hospital where I practice because it's, you know, I, I don't want to seem like I'm speaking for them or representing them. You know, people can always look me up like any provider can be looked up mm-hmm. on the web, but I don't say the name because then it would be like linking the two things. Sure. But I, 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 can't, I can say, though, that um, I, I'm, I feel very lucky to practice in a state, Massachusetts, with a pretty intact safety net for a lot of diverse populations. And um, I think it, it gave me a lot of motivation to tell certain stories and write very honestly because of the growing alarm I feel about the erosion of resources, support for people at the margins, you know, in, in our country right now. So I think, I mean, that, that, that part is relevant and not specific to which specific hospital. I work enough on the front line so I see what a difference it makes, you know, when there's something in Massachusetts called health safety net that covers undocumented um, children and parents, you know. And um, it's, a, it's a very different approach than other things we're seeing going on in the country now, including this weekend. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up. I'm assuming that you're either an internist or in trauma, but it's interesting you work in a state where um, what is commonly known as Obamacare was actually trialed uh, and and was a successful uh, market-based intervention. By a Republican. By a Republican, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. We had a, a, just to tie into that, we had a large uh, rally here yesterday opposing the ICE uh, raids that are coming down. And I work in the public sector as well, and... uh, I work at a library, and we actually nice. we actually received um, how to deal with that. And we 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 actually if you know if ICE comes to the library, we we actually had to go through this with the Patriot Act too. And the Patriot Act was instilled, yeah. um, and we have a very strict yeah. 
policy where we don't give out information about anyone. It's based on unless there's a search warrant. And, um, you know, it's just yeah. interesting how these things come to be. Yeah, I mean, and this is something that we, we actually had to deal with in our in our day job as well. I, uh, I work at a, a couple restaurants and uh, we've actually had people show up and, and try to, um, without warrants, check IDs of right. people working in kitchens exactly. and things really? like that. Yeah, that started to happen exactly. here. Yeah. People are being pulled over. Activists are being pulled over, like in Hudson Valley, other parts of New York State, for example, by ICE agents without warrants. And the ones who know their rights, you know, are able to stop and say, what are you doing? But I think, that, to me, that's the great comfort of fiction, poetry, literature, that it is our beautiful space where we can stop and think, what are we doing? What is everyone doing? You know, let's remember who we are. Let's remember the value of human beings. And this, it brings up, I mean, your fiction is very concerned with uh, the immigrant experience into America as well. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of stories, especially I'm thinking, I believe it's called Orange Popsicles. I don't actually have your book in mm-hmm. front of me because we only have got a couple mm-hmm. copies of it. But there, there's one uh, that deals with the aftermath of a rape in a, in a very uh, unusual way or perhaps an unusual way for Americans. Um, mm-hmm. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about why this is such a potent vein for you to mine for your own fiction. And on top of that, why do you think this is uh, something that's so critical to be talking about and writing about right now? Well, I think, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's been said before, I'll say it again, I think John Lewis said recently, there are no illegal human beings. We all came here on ships. They might have been different ships, but we all came here that one way, right? One way or another. Maybe those earliest of us came by the Bering Land Strait rather than a ship. But I mean, the, the, it is it is a country relatively recently built on immigration. So I think in a, in a in a curious way, it makes me feel more American um, to look closely at this process and what it means and what the emotional impact has been and okay now we're all in this soup together and what's the next step and how do we sort of face each other and deal with each other and i think that you're making bringing those two things together immigration and the story orange popsicles makes me more aware of how immigrant aspiration and dream plays a role in this young woman um, you know the, the the victim or survivor of the rape and how she experiences that, survives it in many ways, moves on from it, though continues to be shaped by it in some way. That she has a particular vulnerability because of her visa, her scholarship, her contingent status in the U- in the U.S. Right as a very recent arrival with no family here, no connections versus her rapist, the perpetrator, who is everything she's not, not only white and male, but moneyed, elite, a legacy, entitled, in, acts very much in the belief that he's someone who can get away with stuff. And the fact that the story's based at Yale and the, um, the explicitness of the interaction, so many um, readers have come to me at readings and asked me, was this a Kavanaugh story? Like, was this based on 
you know, what was described by Dr. Ford about Brett Kavanaugh. But what's interesting is how um, that kind of self-conception echoes and reiterates. So Kavanaugh's considerably older than me, and so is Ford, you know, but my Yale had its version of that. And more recently, other people's Yale or other Ivy League school or other college campus or whatever has their version of that. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's the other interesting thing that, again, with fiction, you're talking so specifically and you're so rooted in a particular geography of this immigration and this person and this campus. But um, that kind of vulnerability of people with a contingent status who are recent arrivals echoes all over the world, echoes all over diaspora, like um, South Asian immigrants to the United Arab Emirates and Dubai and the way that they're treated and their vulnerability or, um, you know, indentured servants in the Pacific Islands and in the Caribbean and how they were treated. You know, just it, I think there's an echoing not only across generations, but in different settings that also really interests me. So on the one hand, I'm writing very specific, small worlds, but hopefully they reverberate with larger ones as well. I wanted to ask a question about the first story, A White Dancing Elephants, which is, uh, you know, we're in the mind of a, a woman who has lost her baby. And there was, um, the story's called White Dancing Elephant. There's a line on page 15, imagining white elephants and dreaming of your birth. And then throughout mm-hmm. the book, you know, we have uh, little elephants separating the paragraphs. What, what is the symbolism of, of the uh dancing white elephants in throughout the book? Well, um, the one reason, I'm, I'm so grateful you asked that, actually, because like with many images in um, South Asian and Southeast Asian cultures, as, as well as elsewhere, you know, um, like I'm thinking of the coyote in Native American cultures, or, um, you know, the crocodile in different West African cultures. Like, um, so in, in South Asian cultures, um, the elephant in particular has so many different resonances. So on the one hand, there's a Hindu god, um, Ganesha, is the god of beginnings, um, the god you invoke when you start something and you have hope for it. So for me, it made sense to put it in the beginning of the collection, even though that was sort of like a secret thing I had in my mind, and I like many little religious um, beliefs, we don't make it explicit while we're doing that because that's part of its magic or like why it works, why it was an entertainment weekly. I invoked Ganapati. And then, um, you know, then there's the a borrowing of the elephant motif in Buddhism as well. And um, there's a story of the Buddha's birth. So he was born Siddhartha to his mother, the Queen Maya, and she desperately wanted a child. Um, and that, that was the grief and loss is in that story as well of her, her son, Siddhartha, refusing to become a prince, refusing the material world. Once upon a time, there lived a man of little importance, but his fine young daughter did belong to him. Her lovely face, the soft and angular parts of her body, her hips, her strong legs, her glorious laugh, everything that made her worth the highest price. 
Naturally, the father had to search for some suitable person to bid for her. Every day, the daughter offered a million prayers, begging for the blessing of a lover who wouldn't pay money. And every night, she lit a million candles, facing the lights away from where her father was always watching. She'd occupy herself for the whole night with this one task, so that her father would be asleep by the time the sun came up, too tired to come into her room. The god of death was fed up with the piteous pleas of that tenacious girl, who asked for a salvation he would not be able to grant. Finally, either to avoid hearing the subterranean growled prayers of her father, which the girl also heard, or out of some divine mercy, the god of death performed a miracle. But neither the girl nor her father were aware of it at first. The god of death sent her a lover, the lover who would become the husband of the girl who had to walk 50 miles. With time, the lover found their house, but he limped like an old man. The finest clothes awaited him, but the blisters on his feet prevented him from standing up. But once healed, the girl could see how strong and independent he would be, how the god of death had sent her the right one after all, if she could be patient with him. After anxious days of waiting, the girl broke down and begged the man to marry her. He barely walked. He lacked the strength to lie on top of her. But the clever girl found a palanquin meant for brides and promised that, after the wedding, he could rest on its cushions. And since she had no horse, she promised that she would carry the palanquin's long handles on her shoulder. The first night, instead of making love, the man slept a dreamless sleep. The girl stayed awake. When the sun rose on the marriage bed, there he was with his feet in bandages, the girl with her gown tightly fastened. The girl then stole a bigger palanquin that would allow more room for making love and sat out men who could take her, her burden so she could lie with him. There was another sunrise, another dreamless sleep, and a restless girl searching out another palanquin to be carried by a lifter of strong, fearless men whose legs could easily outrun her father. And another when her father seemed about to track her down, and another, and so on. Soon enough, the girl was left penniless with just the man who could walk, albeit slowly, and without a sense of where to go. But soon, the stranger promised her, when he was healed, soon they would make mad, fierce love. As the hours crept on, the girl's father, pressing on the trail with his good horse, the girl and her husband, who had still to become her lover, lay down on the fifth night of their marriage on the road next to their last broken palanquin, whose carriers had gone. The road was still. The girl and her lover rested, drifting to sleep and waking and kissing passionately, and every time she kissed him, she gave him strength. Just when he had almost recovered, a horse with a masked heavy rider slashed the ground with steel-shod feet, striking the man in the head before streaking down the road. Instantly, the god of death appeared. As the horse and his rider stopped, seemingly preparing to turn back, the god of death cushioned the dying man's head in his hands, silently urging him to close his eyes. To stop her from lamenting the man, the god showed the frightened girl his own solemn face. But he is so beautiful, she thought with joy. The girl knew from the stories she had read and from the story that might be told about her that she was to bargain with the god of death, plead for her husband's life, show that her devotion extended beyond tears, inspire the god of death by her courage to spare them both. But she could not look away from the god's bleak, handsome face. The sound of the horse with its rider, deafening against the night's silence, pressed her closer and closer, growling desire and patience. The girl unfastened her dress, offering her bare skin. Hurry, she whispered, winning it. Chuck Mertz chatted with Gerald Horn about the century of struggle against apartheid and Jim Crow. 
How did the world react to institutionalized racism and slavery? Find out on This Is Hell every Sunday at 10 a.m. Disavow yourself of everything you know about the fight against apartheid and white supremacy in South Africa, other than the system of minority control was a heinous crime against humanity. And prepare your mind to be blown because returning to This Is Hell is historian Gerald Horn, author of White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. As the entire month of July is Listener Appreciation Month here on This Is Hell, culminating in our Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show on Saturday, July 27th, we want to thank Calvin for suggesting Gerald Horn be back on our show. Calvin told us he recently saw that Gerald has two new books out, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music and White Supremacy Confronted. Calvin says last year's This Is Hell interview with Gerald was one of my favorite of 2018, and it looks like either of these books could be great for an interview. Uh, Thanks, Calvin. And with apologies to Gerald and to all the jazz fans who are listening, we'll be discussing white supremacy confronted with Gerald today. However, I do want to get your jazz book for my nephew who is going to college beginning in the fall at University of Michigan to study jazz percussion. So I'll still want to get that book from you. And I just want to mention one other thing. Uh, Gerald, you may remember, was on our show last year to talk about his book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, which was chosen as one of the best books to be featured here on This Is Hell. So it's a real pleasure to have Gerald back on. And we really want to thank Calvin for suggesting we have him return. You write that it is difficult to understand the decolonization of Southern Africa if one ignores contemporaneous events in North America and indeed the global correlation of forces more generally. Could the decolonization of South Africa have happened without the events that took place in North America? Because that suggests previous events in North America may have been playing a role in South Africa's colonization as well. So how much was colonialism as well as decolonialism in South Africa a North American project? Well, keep in mind that with the beginning of settler colonialism in the Cape, the southern tip of Africa, in 1652, that there was a close link between the origins of settler colonialism here in North America. In fact, North American slave traders who were going around the Cape to Mozambique, then a Portuguese colony, to ensnare and enslave Africans and bring them back to toil in North America, oftentimes stopped and were assisted by their comrades in the city that is now known as Cape Town. Keep in mind as well that if we fast forward to the beginning of the 19th century, when Britain ousted the Dutch from control of the southern tip of Africa, it's the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, that ignites the general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved in it with its collapse. That is to say that in Southern Africa, a la North America, there was slavery. In Southern Africa, the enslaved were not only Africans right there sharing the land with the Dutch or Afrikaners, as they called themselves, but also the Afrikaners enslaved Mozambicans and also went as far afield as what is now Indonesia, because Indonesia, as you know, was also a Dutch colony. But with the Haitian Revolution, you found that Britain felt that the better part of wisdom was to move expeditiously to uh, oppose uh, the slave trade, then abolish slavery in its rich colonies, Jamaica and Barbados, and then put pressure on the Afrikaners to do the same, 
who then began to try to escape British jurisdiction by moving uh, further east and further north uh, from Cape Town. And that leads ultimately to the end of the 19th century with the so-called Anglo-Boer War, a settlers' revolt in Southern Africa, not unlike the settlers' revolt in North America in 1776 that eventuated in the formation of the United States of America. Interestingly enough, in terms of the Anglo-Boer War, you had Euro-Americans, white Americans, fighting on both sides of the equation. Now, to go further into the 20th century, it's interesting to note that the system of apartheid, this hateful, spiteful system of neo-slavery and Jim Crow on steroids, which was not formally inaugurated until 1948, the blueprint for apartheid was drawn up in New York City by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which subsequently has apologized, which is probably too little too late. But part of their purpose and intention was to build a wall between poor Afrikaners and poor Africans to prevent a kind of class unity between and amongst them that could challenge the ruling elite. And so with apartheid, you see the organization of state-controlled corporations and a kind of affirmative action for poor Afrikaners to uplift them in the economy and to give them a so-called stake in the system so that they would distance themselves from their poor uh, African uh, counterparts. Now, you mentioned in your preparatory remarks the connections between African-Americans and Africans in South Africa. I think it's fair to say that up until the Red Scare, up until the Cold War, that is to say up until the post-1945 period, the relationship was rather close. But post-1945 and the onset of the Red Scare and the Cold War, you saw that the NAACP, the leading organization amongst black Americans, found it necessary to embark on the road of anti-communism and to purge its ranks of those real and imagined communists, including their founder, W.E.B. Du Bois, by the way, would help to found this organization, the NAACP, in 1909, whereas the African National Congress, which had come into existence in 1912, a three scant years after the formation of the NAACP, decided to take a different route. It tightened its relationship with the South African Communist Party, and in fact, uh, I'm not the first historian to point out that Nelson Mandela, inaugurated as the first democratically elected president in South Africa in 1994, was probably a member of the South African Communist Party uh, for a good deal of his adult life. And I should also say that it's interesting to look at the different ways in which people in the Jewish community were treated in North America and in Southern Africa. In North America, as you know, for reasons that I can go into if you're interested, there was a smoother path for those of Jewish descent, despite anti-Semitism, despite the lynching of Leo Frank in circa 1915, a, a Jewish-American man in Georgia lynched on rather spurious reasons. Whereas the Afrikaner, despite the title of my book, White Supremacy, in some ways, the Afrikaners were Afrikaner nationalists first and white second. That is to say, they sought to block the migration of other Europeans who were not of Dutch descent to the southern tip of Africa, even though they were outnumbered 10 to 1 by Africans. And more particularly, they particularly tried to block the migration of those who were Jewish who were fleeing pogroms in Central and Eastern Europe 
uh, in the first few decades of the 20th century, and of course that accelerated in the 1930s with the rise of Hitler. And what this serves to do is to drive many Jewish people in South Africa into the arms of the African National Congress and their ally, the South African Communist Party. In fact, a close comrade of Nelson Mandela was the Lithuanian Jewish man, a man of Lithuanian Jewish descent, I should say, Joe Slovo, who was the head of the South African Communist Party, and also for a while the leader of the armed wing of the African National Congress. This close relationship between the ANC and the South African Communist Party obviously complicated the ability of the ANC and Mandela to win support here in North America, and that does not begin to happen, in fact, until the collapse of the Berlin Wall, November 1989, and the last apartheid leader, F.W. de Klerk, chooses that moment to negotiate with Mandela and the African National Congress because the then-socialist camp of Eastern, and, of Eastern Europe was a major bulwark of support for the ANC. As, as noted, the United States was hotly opposed to the ANC, seeing it as a kind of communist front, to use that term of Europe. And so Mandela is freed in February 1990, uh, weeks after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. His organization, the ANC, is unbanned, as is the uh, South African Communist Party. Uh, thereby is, takes place uh, lengthy uh, four years of negotiations culminating these elections in 1994. Now, the book also deals with the larger uh, regional context, the liberation struggle uh, in Angola, a once a site for the ensnaring of Africans to be enslaved in North America. In fact, the leading prison in, in Louisiana to this very day is coincidentally enough named Angolan State Prison. Uh, you would find, uh, if you were able to investigate, that a goodly number of the black people you pass on the streets of Chicago or of Angolan descent, whether they know it or not. And the turning point in that particular struggle was the intervention in 1975 of Cuban troops who defeated the apartheid military on the battlefield, raising the specter that the Cuban troops would not stop there, but would march eastward into what was then called Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and forcibly oust the white minority regime there, and perhaps go on to Pretoria and forcibly oust the white minority regime there. Uh, this helps to induce a sense of compromise and realism uh, in the races, forcing even the United States to bend to reality. U.S. President Ronald Wilson Reagan is forced to uh, execute the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1985, despite the fact that he had sought to veto this act. This was due, this is, that is to say, this uh, comprehensive sanctions against South African apartheid to this massive solidarity movement that particularly gripped campuses, not only campuses from the Atlantic to the Pacific, but also should also say campuses right there in your backyard, in Evanston, at Northwestern in particular. But also, it was a product, that is to say, this anti-apartheid movement of unions, particularly the West Coast longshoremen who com controlled the docks from Seattle to San Diego, refused to unload South African merchandise, and this helped to compromise the business relationship between the United States and South Africa, which was quite uh, significant, uh, most a goodly number of the Fortune 500 corporations, including GM, 3M, uh, Ford, the rubber giants of Akron, they were all uh, based in South Africa as well, taking advantage of the cheap labor there, 
which was obviously giving U.S. corporations an incentive and inducement to shut down their plants here and move to the neo-slavery sites of South Africa. So it was understandable why unions would be opposed to South Africa. All of this pressure then leads, finally, to the forced, compelled retreat of apartheid and colonialism in Southern Africa by 1994. Floor is real sticky. Did someone leave the gas on? Nope. Weird. Hey, bud. Morning. Two things. One, have you seen my audio recorder? No, not yet. Coffee before cleaning. Ooh, coffee sounds good. I'm sure the recorder will turn up. Help yourself. Man, we went late last night. What was the second thing? Is that your car on fire outside? Nope. Never seen it before. <sighs> hey guys, is the uh, is the stove on? It smells like burning. That's in here. the first thing I checked. It's it's actually that there's a car on fire outside. Huh. huh. Hey, your car, Jess? Is Jesse Jess? I saw a ghost, and I think we should go catch it. We have been over this, Kyle. Listen, I... Do you want some coffee? Uh, Thanks, but no, the caffeine makes me jittery and paranoid. <laughs> Did you guys have a party last night and not invite me? Um... Oh, no. Uh, this is an art installation ah. about today's socio-political climate. So why is she cleaning it up, then? Women have to lead the way, Kyle. Yeah, right, okay. Historically speaking, the car out front's got about five minutes until the fire hits the gas tank. So if and if it's any of yours... You know, we should start filling buckets. No, not me. Nope. Okay, so Jess, it's real late. I'm out back at Ed's Potstickers talking to this guy who sort of works there, when all of a sudden, I feel this spiritual Holy hand... Holy crap, there's a car on fire outside. No! no. Well, did you call the fire department? Uh, oh, yeah. Right, yeah, right, we, we should have right. done that. We, we should have, definitely. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump attacks four Democratic congresswomen with a racist broadside claiming they hate America and should leave. The House censures Trump and begins to hold officials in contempt. Trump's social media summit nearly devolves into a fistfight. Ice raids begin. Congress condemns Trump's racism, but draws back from impeachment. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 904, July 12th. Trump began the day with a Twitter rant that asked, quote, how could anyone vote for a Democrat over what you have now so great looking and smart, a true stable genius? Trump then joked he should serve another 14 years. It is the third time Trump has suggested he will not leave office. Trump hosted a social media summit at the White House for his political allies. Some Republican lawmakers were also invited. Trump accused tech companies of exhibiting, quote, terrible bias and silencing his supporters. He then praised the group for, quote, the crap you think of. 
Ironically, Twitter experienced an outage during the summit. Prior to the outage, attendees had been tweeting selfies. At the summit, Sebastian Gorka, a right-wing commentator, briefly worked at the White House and remains a supporter of Trump, got into a shouting match in the Rose Garden with Brian Karam. He covers the White House for Playboy magazine. After yelling at Karam, quote, you're threatening me in the Rose Garden, Karam challenged him to take it outside. You're not a journalist, you're a punk. Trump later tweeted, quote, Seb Gorka wins big, no contest. Gorka also declared that the members of the world champion United States women's soccer team, quote, want to destroy everything that is wholesome in our country and in our Judeo-Christian civilization. Trump announced his retreat from asking a question about citizenship on the 2020 census, but he upstaged his own effort by saying, quote, are you a citizen of the United States of America? Sarcastically mimicking a data collector for the Census Bureau. Oh, gee, I'm sorry, I just can't answer that question. Meanwhile, the House authorized 12 subpoenas targeting Trump administration officials, including Trump family members and Jared Kushner. The committee also approved a separate group of subpoenas seeking information about the Trump administration's practice of separating children from their families at the border. And Trump withdrew a proposal to lower prescription drug prices, which would have ended the practice of drug makers giving rebates to insurance middlemen in government programs like Medicare. In related news, a federal judge threw out a rule that would have required pharmaceutical companies to list the price of their drugs in TV campaigns. Day 905, July 13th. At least 18 babies under the age of two, and including nine infants under the age of one, were separated from their parents at the border and kept apart for 20 days to six months. 2,648 children were separated from their parents by the Trump administration, many longer than the 72-hour limit. Most were shuffled around to multiple government facilities. In a related story, Border Patrol agents are circulating challenge coins that mock the migrants. On the front, the coin declares, quote, keep the caravans coming. The reverse features the Border Patrol logo and three illustrations of a Border Patrol agent bottle-feeding an infant, an agent fingerprinting a teen, and a U.S. Border Patrol fan. The text reads, feeding, processing, hospital, transport. Vice President Mike Pence visited two detention facilities in Texas, including a Border Patrol station where hundreds of men were crowded in sweltering cages without cots. Agents wore face masks. Pence described the facility as smelling horrendous and called the experience tough stuff. He and Lindsey Graham later tried to explain away the visit, claiming that it was an outrage to compare those conditions to concentration camps and that the detention center was, quote, providing care that every American would be proud of. This was while he was pictured with a group of detained men chanting behind him, no shower, no shower. Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta resigned amidst controversy about a plea deal he brokered for sex offender Jeffrey Epstein while serving as U.S. Attorney in Florida. Trump called Acosta, quote, a great Labor Secretary, not a good one, and a tremendous talent. The House has voted 251 to 170 to keep Trump from striking Iran without congressional approval. Trump claims he does not need Congress's approval to strike Iran. He was reportedly on the brink of a retaliatory missile strike before abruptly reversing courts minutes before launch. And an analysis shows that the revenue from Trump's tariffs on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods is not enough to cover the cost of the bailout he's giving to farmers. Tariffs will have brought in $20.8 billion as of the time you hear this, but Trump has already committed to paying $28 billion to the farmers hurt by the trade war. The people who are actually bearing the cost of the tariffs are the American taxpayers. Day 906, July 14th. Ice raids reportedly started in major cities across the country this morning. Trump had threatened mass raids on the city of Chicago this weekend, but Sunday passed quietly with only scattered reports. There had been no arrests of Chicago so far. However, the neighborhoods of Little Village and Pilsen were quieter than normal over the weekend. 
Trump called four Democratic congresswomen, quote, foreign-born troublemakers who should go back to the broken and crime-infested places from which they came. Trump did not name the people, but he was referring to the so-called squad headed by Alexander Ocasio-Ortez. All four are American citizens and born in the United States, except for one who became a refugee at the age of 10 when the Civil War devastated Somalia. Trump, again, did not mention the women by name, but they include Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. The tweets drew sharp rebukes from both Democrats and Republicans who called them racist. Three of the four women Trump referred to, of course, were born in America. California passed legislation mandating all presidential and state gubernatorial candidates release their tax information in order to appear on the state's ballot. The legislation includes what's called an urgency clause, which allows it to take effect immediately. It will force the candidates currently running for president in 2020, including Trump, to comply with the law. Trump attacked Paul Ryan. He claimed that Ryan was not a talent, wasn't a leader, and was a lame duck for a long time as speaker. Trump's comments came after Ryan said Trump didn't know anything about government and that we've gotten so numb by it all, not in government, but where we live our lives. We have a responsibility to try and rebuild. Don't call a woman a horse face. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't cheat on anything. Be a good person. Set a good example. Trump said the only success Paul Ryan had was with the time he was with me. He was a baby. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. He also criticized Ryan for not building him a wall. Day 907, July 15th. Trump denied that his racist tweets were racist, insisting that if you're not happy here, then you can leave. That echoes a line from the Ku Klux Klan. Earlier, Trump accused four congressmen of spewing racist hatred and that many people agree with his view that they hate our country. Trump claimed the four have been complaining constantly about the United States. These are people that hate our country. They hate our country. They hate it, I think, with a passion. In fact, the four have been complaining constantly about Trump. The four have made no demonstrable statements that could be construed as hating America. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said he doesn't believe Trump's racist tweets were racist either. I understand what the president's comment is, Mnuchin said. I'm not concerned about the president's comment. The four congresswomen condemned Trump's tweets in a news conference calling them the agenda of white nationalists and a continuation of his racist and xenophobic playbook. Presley said, quote, our squad is big. Our squad includes any person committed to building a more equitable and just world. And that is the work we want to get back to. If we cannot, we will not be silenced. Representative Omar called him a fascist. Trump then attacked the four congresswomen again in a series of tweets saying, quote, if you are not happy here, you can leave. Meanwhile, one former colleague of the Trumps said, quote, Donald Trump makes racist comments all the time. Once you know him, he speaks his mind about race very openly. That's Jack O'Donnell, who was the former president of the Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City. Also, the Trump administration moved to end asylum protections for most Central American migrants. A new rule would require them to pass through a third country on their way to the U.S. and to first apply for refugee status in that country rather than at the U.S. border. The rule is expected to go into effect on Tuesday and would also apply to children who have crossed the border by themselves. Kellyanne Conway is to ignore a House Oversight Committee subpoena and refuse to testify about a government's watchdog's findings that she repeatedly violated the Hatch Act. Congress is now likely to find her in contempt. And Trump's former campaign communications chief said in open court that he had hired numerous prostitutes and visited massage parlors. Jason Miller made the admission in open court in connection to a lawsuit he has filed against Gizmodo. Miller accused the media company of defaming him with a story that he, quote, slipped an abortion pill to a stripper he had impregnated. Day not under Nate, July 16th. Ahead of a House vote to condemn his racist tweets, Trump lashed out again at four congresswomen of color. Trump insisted his tweets were not racist, quote, I don't have a racist bone in my body, and claimed it was his opponents instead who should be silenced. 
the coming vote will force Republicans to go on the record about Trump's comments. Quote, the Democratic congresswomen have been spewing some of those vile, hateful, and disgusting things ever said by a politician in the House or a Senate, yet they get a free pass and a big embrace. Why isn't the House voting to reboot the filthy and hate-laced things they have said? Because they are the radical left and Democrats are afraid to take them on. Sad. Meanwhile, Kellyanne Conway responded to a reporter's question about Trump's racist tweets with, What's your ethnicity? Reporter Andrew Feinberg had asked Conway which countries Trump was referring to when he suggested that Anya Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilan Omar should go back to where they came from. Clearly baffled, Feinberg replied, why is that relevant? Because I'm asking a question, my ancestors are from Ireland and Italy, Conway shot back. Feinberg replied, my own ethnicity is not relevant to the question I'm asking. Are you saying the president was telling the Palestinian American to go back to the occupied territories? Conway would later apologize. The exchange came on a day when Conway's husband, George, penned a long op-ed in the Washington Post calling Trump a racist disgrace. The Trump administration will begin immediately enforcing a new regulation that taxpayer-funded family planning clinics must stop referring women for abortions. Health and Human Services formally notified the clinics it will begin enforcing the new rule in addition to a requirement that clinics maintain separate finances from facilities that provide abortions. The requirements are a broadside against Planned Parenthood, which overwhelmingly assists low-income women. Attorney General William Barr will not bring federal civil rights charges against the New York Police Department officer accused of fatally choking Eric Garner five years ago. Barr settled a dispute between prosecutors and the Civil Rights Division. Prosecutors were worried they could not successfully prove the officer acted willfully. That officer, Daniel Pantaleo, remains in uniform and now will never face criminal prosecution for Garner's death, despite bystanders filming the arrest as Garner said, quote, I can't breathe. And the House Oversight Committee is investigating the use of personal email by Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. The move comes after what House Chair Elijah Cummings described as disturbing new revelations about DeVos's use of personal email while on the job. She has been accused of maintaining ties to for-profit college operators. Day 909, July 17th. The House voted to condemn as racist Trump's attacks against four congresswomen of color, but only after a bitter partisan brawl on the floor. The measure passed along party lines following one of the most polarizing exchanges heard on the House floor in recent memory. Nancy Pelosi had urged both Democrats and Republicans to come together in, quote, condemning the president's racist tweets. And that the comments from the White House are disgraceful, disgusting, and the comments are racist. A Republican, Representative Doug Collins, asked Pelosi to rephrase her statement, which was then ruled out of order. Under House rules, lawmakers may not make disparaging remarks about a president on the floor of the House. However, following a two-hour-long delay, the House voted along party lines to allow Pelosi to refer to his tweets as racist, overriding House rules. That final vote, condemning Trump's rhetoric as, quote, racist comments that have legitimized increased fear and hatred of new Americans and people of color, passed 240 to 187. In the wake of that, Trump tripled down on his racist calls for Representative Ilan Omar to go back to Somalia as a crowd chanted, send her back, at a rally in North Carolina. Trump also used an old Ku Klux Klan slogan, love it or leave it, saying, quote, if they don't love it, tell them to leave it. Trump spent more time during the rally focusing on the four congresswomen of color than he did on his opponents in the 2020 presidential race, calling the women dangerous hard leftists who see our nation as a force for evil. They are hate-filled extremists who are constantly trying to tear our country down. Trump said he's not unhappy with the reaction to his racist comments. Quote, the only thing they have, the only thing they can do now is play the race card, Trump claimed to the congresswoman. 
The former Ecuadorian president said his country was aware that Julian Assange was interfering in the 2016 presidential election from inside their embassy in London. Assange transformed the embassy into a command center to release a series of disclosures intended to undermine Hillary Clinton. Assange met with Russians and hackers and installed custom computer hardware to facilitate data transfers to and from Russian operatives. Federal prosecutors in New York ended their investigation into the Trump Organization's role in the hush money payments made to protect Trump during the 2016 presidential campaign. As a result, a judge ordered all the evidence to be made public. Revealed was that Trump and his press secretary were directly involved in discussions that led to a payment to Stormy Daniels. A court filing unsealed said that Trump and Hope Hicks spoke repeatedly with Michael Cohen as Daniels, also known as Stephanie Clifford, threatened to sell her story of an affair with Trump. The filing seemed to indicate Hicks lied to the FBI. Day 910, July 18th, the House killed an attempt to impeach Trump for his racist statements. The move split Democrats, underscoring divisions within the party. The vote was 332 to 95 against. Only four Republicans voted for the measure. Trump claimed, quote, we just received an overwhelming vote against impeachment and that is the end of it. In fact, the motion to table does not preclude any future impeachment actions. Trump claimed he was, quote, not happy with the Chandidate's rally that called for a Muslim-American congresswoman to be sent back to Somalia. Asked why he did not stop the chant, Trump claimed, I think I did, I started speaking very quickly. This is false. In fact, as the crowd roared center back, Trump looked around and seemed to bask in the refrain. A recently surfaced November 1992 tape shows Trump and convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein at Mar-a-Lago laughing, pointing, and leering at young women. Trump is seen gesturing to a woman and says to Epstein, look at her back there, she's hot. The party took place the same year that Trump hosted a private party for Epstein himself and more than two dozen calendar girls who were flown in to provide them with entertainment. A separate vote in the House held Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in criminal contempt of Congress for defying subpoenas and perjury. Ross previously testified before Congress that he added a controversial citizenship question solely at the request of the Justice Department. It later came out that he'd asked the department to make the request. Barr and Ross face up to a year behind bars and a $100,000 fine, but it is unlikely the Justice Department will pursue that case because Barr is the head of the Justice Department. 59% of Americans have called Trump's tweets targeting four congresswomen un-American. 68% called the tweets offensive. But among Republicans post-tweets, Trump's support rose by five points. These are the Trump Diaries. Maria Smith spoke to Susan Carmouche about the history and the impact of Hyde Park's Silver Room Block Party. News from the service entrance with Maria Smith airs Thursdays at 2 p.m. This weekend in Hyde Park here in the city of Chicago, the 16th Silver Room Sound System Block Party will be taking place along 53rd Street and other parts of the city, <laughs> or other parts of the neighborhood, rather. And joining me on the phone right now is someone I have had the pleasure of knowing for many, many a hour. It's my friend Susan Carmouche. Susan serves on the committee for the Silver Room Sound System Block Party. Hey, Susan Carmouche. Hello, Mario Smith. How are you today, my friend? <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. It's always good to hear your voice. Thank you for being on my show. I really, really am humbled and honored because I have always wondered what it would be like to interview a Susan Carmouche. Well, we're gonna we're gonna find out in just a few minutes, <laughs> won't we? <laughs> yeah, we are. Um, this is number sixteen for the Silver Room Block Party, and uh, I, I have been host for or a host for like thirteen of them, 
And every year I'm amazed at how at the growth and, and just the thinking growth, not the, necessarily the people growth. That's a whole nother mind thing, but just the growth and, and how everybody approaches it and how people um, really appreciate the event. Can you talk from your point of view about like when you came in and what does this mean for you personally, the, the, the block party? Wow. Well, it means a lot of things, and you're right. It's not just about the growth in people. Um, like you, I've been around, I think I've missed one block party ever, and I've worked 14 of the 16 block parties. And wow. I can recall, yeah, right? And I can remember the first block party, I had two two chores, so to speak. I had to pick someone up from the airport and get her pinned. <laughs> well, right? that, I'm sure the Herb Kent one was fun. It was it was a lot of fun, but it, it, those things are still no easy feat. And you look, you're talking about an event that started out with maybe 200 people. There was no planning involved. It was really just, hey, Mario, what are you doing tomorrow? We're having a right. little party. Stop by. Right. And now you're looking at something that takes hours and hours of preparation. I mean, from the production side, from operations, the vendor relations, there is a lot of work that goes into this. There's a lot of thought. Uh, of course, we, uh, many years ago, it, it, you know, we didn't have to contact the city, so to speak. It was just a little gathering. And so now you have those channels, too, that you have to go through. And um, it's really amazing to me. I'm just, I'm each year, I'm just floored, uh, not just at the reception or, or just what we get back from the community, because that in itself is a whole nother feat, and it's amazing, mm-hmm. but that people are constantly, hey, can you guys do, uh, can you make this a two-day event? Can you right. make this uh, an all-weekend event? And right. it's like, wow, no one would ever see us. Our families wouldn't see us. And so... <laughs> Uh, it, it just, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And, uh, when Sunday comes, I'll probably sleep, sleep all day. Yeah. I took, I took, uh, from my job job, I took Sunday off. I'm not trying to do it because I'm, I, good for you. Yeah. Plus it's birthday weekend. You know, I'm, I'm not doing Plus that. it's birthday. Happy early born day to you, sir. Thank you very much, Susan Carmouche. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> um, we talk about this event, and then there's the Pitchfork Music Festival. There's the Chosen Few. There's, uh, for the first time this year, Complex Con. Um, and all of these things, WVON, Block Party, all these things converging around the same time. I, I, I wonder, and I've never asked, you know, this is one of the things I've never asked any of, of you guys how much influence, and I don't think so much for Pitchfork, but how much influence do you think um, this event is having upon other uh, events in the city? And I know part of the deal is we want people to create, and we want people to, to take the, the chance of creating something like this. But how much influence do you think we're having? I think we're having quite a bit of influence. Uh, We had a uh, collaboration a couple of months back where we spoke with, uh, we did a thing with the Chosen Few over Mm -hmm. at the Promontory. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that that conversation was really meant to, to, or intended to do, was to kind of dispel a lot of the uh, myths about what it takes to put on an event of this, this magnitude. And the first thing that I'd like to say uh, in terms of influence, you know, we see so much 
bad on the news if we choose to tend, uh, choose to, 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 to look at it. Right. But this really gets to highlight the south side of Chicago in a positive manner, not something that you see often. And people recognize that, which is just one of the many reasons that they come out, because it is uh, positive. It's very family-oriented and friendly, and it's something for everyone. And then, and this is my opinion, I've noticed some of the other smaller uh, festivals or events that, and this is a good thing, I guess, because my mother always said that uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Right. I sometimes think otherwise. <laughs> but we do see um, some duplicity in terms of other events that are, are coming al- along, you know. More importantly, each year we try to have a positive theme for our event. This year's event is the greater good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it may sound it may sound like a couple of little easy words, but it's not. It's really about sacrificing. Glitter Money turned in a fierce John Daly session last week in Studio A. Engineered by Ari Shellist, this is Smoke Until You Die. We got an album drop on Friday. Drinking dollar beers, had to smoke before I left the house, so I ain't got no beers. Smoking grinder, dagger on my arm, we'll chop it up. Last bowl, bung, punch, yo, I don't give a what. Actually, my lung capacity is brutal. Like, pass it right back to me, like, if it's looking crucial. Smoking, but not trying to stop it. We in my bra, my panties, my pockets. We ain't no novice, smoking disciples. Roll over extra pages in the bottle. Hey, baby, no song, we broke. Hey, I smoke till the mic is for play. Tuesday clock on the beat, I'm a guy. Legalize, legalize, legalize all white people, prioritize the marijuana industry for them. Free the people, free the people, lock up time bags 
The culture I come from is uh, very alligator centric. It's uh, we. Um, we use it. We use it's a, it's a utility herd. We use it all the parts of it: uh, meat, the leather. Um, we use the grease for our airboats. Um, we use the feet for decorative keychains. Mm-hmm. It all goes to use. And um, sure, and just and just like so, let me tell you about what I've seen. Now I've scoped out the area around this lagoon, um, and what I've seen is is I've seen some 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 fine men. And a few women, mostly men, in in camo and with harpoons. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to wrangle this thing. Now, DF, I'm not a Floridian, but is this how the the typical traditional hunt of an alligator is conducted? Traditionally, no. Um, in the the specifically the area I come from in Florida, that would be considered cowardly. Um, what one does is is you strip naked and then you go and you wrestle the gator um, in an honorable hand-to-maw sure. combat. It's it's proving that you deserve the oil. Well, and, and you know, by and large, so it, it, the that this is my first thing of wisdom that or folk wisdom that, that I want to yes. bounce off you. Um, is that there is a conception amongst uh, individuals who are, in fact, uh, we call it wrangling or wrestling on occasion, um, these gators, that by entering in this sort of more honorable, even matched sort of aspect that that if you are losing and you do lose, oftentimes the alligator will just leave um, after it has proven itself the victor. And we've always ascribed that to the the natural honor of the alligator. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, it is a is, noble savage. Is there a um is there a scientific backing to this or is this purely what Yeah, what is the take? morality of an alligator look like? They're not a philosopher. They're a doctor. Sure. Okay. We're, okay. We we don't have a herpetological philosopher. <laughs> Scientifically speaking, um do you feel that there is a basis for this or is that is that um just a uh, an old an old wise tale? Well, um, alligators are usually naturally male, and males have dominance. You know, they always have dominance issues. They want to be on top of everything. So if an alligator, if you're fighting an alligator, of course the alligator is going to want to win. And, um, well, if you lose, it just proves that you are not an equal to the alligator, and so he'll just leave you alone. Oh, so the alligator will only – so I see what it is. The alligator only considers it a true victory – if you have given a fair fight, and if the alligator does win too easily, it will leave you alone because you're not even worthy of, yes. of being a meal. Yes, that exactly. is fascinating. Are we doing yet? 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 Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs> Thank you.